This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. This is going to be a rough one, folks. A content warning to start things off. In this episode, we discuss eugenics and forced sterilization, and there's a brief mention of rape in the back half of the show. Eugenics. It's a term we mostly associate with fascist regimes, and for good reason. Nazi Germany of the 1930s and 1940s was the most infamous and horrifying manifestation of eugenic ideology. In the early 20th century, eugenics was a pseudoscientific approach, which is really a way of saying a false scientific approach, to controlling the qualities of humanity by choosing who gets to reproduce and who does not. But this is a show about Virginia, remember? So here's the brutal truth. Our own state adopted the eugenics ideology before the Nazis got to it. The Virginia Eugenic Sterilization Act passed in 1924. That's less than 100 years ago. The law allowed for the forced sterilization of individuals confined to state institutions. And while it was repealed in the 1970s, that initial law was never officially ruled as unconstitutional. And somehow, as we think back on our own history, the horrors of eugenics during this 50-year period, give or take, go more or less forgotten about. We have a compulsion, particularly in America, I think, to kind of want to achieve some kind of historical balance with our emotions and what we feel and think about history. So if we tell a bad story, we feel pressure to tell a good story to sort of achieve sort of a, a neutral plane on which the past is told through. Um, and that's not always possible. And it's certainly not, I think, a healthy impulse when, when thinking about the past and some of these questions, particularly looking at the history of eugenics raised. That's Elizabeth Catt. She's a public historian, editor, and writer of compact nonfiction. She's the author of Pure America, Eugenics and the Making of Modern Virginia. Her book examines the Virginia eugenics movement through the lens of land ownerships, through the modern buildings that once served as institutions, through the mountains that once held Virginia citizens who were pushed away to make for national parks, and much more. She sat down with Bold Dominion producer Ariane Ballou to discuss Virginia's eugenics history and her approach to writing the book depressing travel guide, I, I think is how my publisher described it, but it is a book about the American eugenics movement uh, centered on the history of the movement in central and western Virginia. So I live in Stanton, uh, I live in the Shenandoah Valley, I live in central Virginia, and so it is a history of what American eugenics looked like. So from about the turn of the 20th century till about World War II, what it looked like um, in my neighborhood and, and some of the landscapes and communities that I interact with every day. So you'll see the Shenandoah uh, National Park, you'll see the University of Virginia, you'll see some landscapes that are in my community, some cemeteries. And I wanted to, to tell a story through land and, and changes in the land because I think that eugenics is something that is really well researched but not so well remembered by the American public. And I thought that if I could write something that keyed in their imaginations to things that were still visible in their communities, then they could sort of take stock of how that history uh, has left its mark on the world around them. So could you, could you break down, you start with talking about um, the Western State Hospital, right? And you use that as kind of a jumping point for three or four different areas of how the uh, Virginia eugenics movement has played out. Could you dive into kind of an overview of what that history is? 
Yeah, sure. So we can start actually uh, with what eugenics actually is, because we're just talking about how people don't really get a lot of that history in, in school, so they might not even be, able to be familiar with the term eugenics. And so what we mean by eugenics is a scientific philosophy that aims to breed better human beings, that aim to use selective breeding to buttress the human race. And I write about eugenics from the late 19th century, early 20th century to World War II. So when we're talking about improvement of, of the human race, we're talking about the white race that was very implicit in eugenic science. Um, sometimes eugenic philosophies are geared towards encouraging um, good genetic specimens to reproduce. And we would call that positive eugenics because the goal of those um, aims are to add people to the population. And sometimes, and this is particularly true of America, um, eugenic goals was to reduce um, certain people from the populations. And we would call that negative eugenics. So subtract people from the population and, and people who are really vulnerable to um, eugenic schemes in the time period that I write about were all disabled people, poor people, black people, and native people. Generally, the people that we see discriminated against in, in other eras kind of come to the front in this era too as victims of eugenics. And so those ideas were incredibly popular in the United States. Um, we would see feature films with eugenic themes. Um, more than half of the American population supported eugenics in the abstract. And that number rose when you would kind of soft border those questions, like, do you think some people shouldn't be born? Eugenics was pitched by national leaders and people very influential in the movement, including leaders at University of Virginia as a participatory science. So anybody that was rational and forward thinking uh, would want to take these ideas seriously. I look at it in my particular study of eugenics is, is what that looked like locally. Um, so it's really straightforward to talk about how it existed in the University of Virginia. We're talking about a faculty that grew from um, the esteem of the ideas that were being circulated by prominent faculty grown by leaders like Edward Alderman, Edwin Alderman, and distilled through leaders in the medical school and biology program, for example. So understanding what eugenics um, looked like at the University of, of Virginia is, is, is more unknown than it should be, but also a, a you know, generally straightforward task. But then we move, can move into landscapes like the Shenandoah uh, National Park, which is a little bit more subjective, more hidden. And, and the idea there is that um, during the creation of this park in the 1920s, uh, it takes place in a world that's sort of awash with eugenic ideas, and particularly the idea that people should be willing to give up things to benefit the larger good. And of course, that uh, comes through profoundly in sort of the eminent domain laws that the state of Virginia used to get people who are living in the future park off the land. And sort of, you know, we, we can also see the resurgence of eugenic ideas, and the imprint of eugenic ideas, and what happened to people who were removed from the land to make way from the park after that they after they were moved, they ended up in institutions like Western State, um, which is in my backyard and sort of the impetus for writing this book. Um, my home, Stanton, is an anchor to anchor within the state hospital system, the state psychiatric hospital system. It's home to Western State Hospital, which was one of five psychiatric institutions that the state maintained. It was exclusively for white patients before integration. Um, and it was serviced by um, a superintendent in the eugenics era named Joseph DeJarnett, who is one of the most emphatic and vocal leaders of the eugenics movement, um, a true acolyte for eugenic sterilization. And, and under his uh, leadership at, at Western State, it sterilized the second number, second highest number of individuals in the state. So 
in terms of, of what happens locally, we can tell interesting stories like what is it like to have an institution of that size and that sort of caliber and that single-minded focus kind of at your doorstep and how does that change what the land looks like and um, where power is circulating in your community. So I try to draw all those together in sort of an interesting conversation about what remains, what's remembered, what isn't remembered, and what, uh, what we can do to kind of sustain memories in the future. So you, you mentioned um, Joseph DeJarnet. There, there are many other names of figures in this book, uh, varying sort of flavors of eugenicist. One thing that you kind of explicitly comment on and and decide like make it make a decision to uh, to do in some ways is to say I'm not going to contextualize them in a certain way and say oh they were men of their time. Tell me a little bit about that first before I, I dive into the rest of it. So Joseph DeJarnet was um, such an emphatic um, supporter of eugenics that he earned the nickname Joseph Sterilization DeJarnet. He was somebody that even people not everybody, but many people in his own time found to be extraordinarily creepy. Um, he was deeply religious. He sort of had an obsessive passion for, for looking at, at sort of like the human condition through um, numbers and rates of return and, and sort of thinking about if we remove X number of people, then so many people in the year 2000 will or won't be insane. So he had sort of a very single-minded way of looking at um, the, the, the people around him and, and the problems of associated with running a hospital like Western State, which was perpetual overcrowding, being sort of more of a custodian of people rather than somebody who is, um, could help or, or even cure some patients. And there's, you know, there's, there's, there's many Joseph DeJarnets out there uh, within the world of eugenics, but more to the point of why I say you know, I don't really want to contextualize these figures as, as men of, you know, men of their time, uh, because that's not interesting to me. That doesn't tell me anything about their lives or the context in which they lived. For example, back in 2014, there was uh, a, a push to get financial compensation for some living survivors of eugenic sterilization. And, you know, in the, in the press and, and particularly the local press here in Stanton, articles, you know, kind of popped up about well, what do we think about the legacy of eugenics and do we support um, financial compensation? And they sort of said, well, these were people who were flawed but had humanitarian motives. And, you know, me personally, I don't accept that. And I don't accept that as a person who has read deeply within the literature they produced. I've read, read critiques of their work. I've read their work in context and I've thought deeply about their, what their work and, and sort of what they, they achieved. But also, you know, me saying in my book that he's creepy and why people found him creepy and, and sort of like why his ideas were flawed even in his own time is a lot more interesting um, and a lot more educational than just saying like, well, he was representative of people who, who had power at his time. So I um, like to signal that I am not available to have conversations about, you know, kind of like excusing historical figures and you know, I think the trade-off for that is, you know, kind of getting a much more nuanced and fuller portrait of who they were um, without kind of putting a soft border around it. So I feel like there is this this interesting tension between sort of bad guys and the bad systems that they are a part of and, and sort of the larger um, institutions. So how, how do we go about uh, walking this line of um, denouncing 
almost cartoonishly evil figures like uh, Dejarnet, um, but without also sort of absolving the, the systems and the less cartoonishly evil people who still allowed those things to happen, those systems to continue. I mean, that's a really important question. I don't have a tidy answer for that. Um, and I, you know, and I almost feel like having a tidy answer to that would be disrespectful to a place like Charlottesville um, and to a community like the university community, especially um, with the violence that the community suffered um, several years ago uh, with Unite the Right and, and the conversations that preceded that about what to do about Confederate monuments. And again, these conversations about uh, romanticization of, of bad people in the past, but how that is also connected to deeper systemic problems. So I feel that um, being able to tie an answer up with a bow is not going to be satisfying to anybody um, who might be listening to a program like this or, or you know, is up to, um, or knows what the, how the world around them works in a place like Charlottesville. But I think that, um, you know, I, I give credit to the University of Virginia, for example, um, has renamed um, several buildings that were named after their eugenicist faculty leaders. Um, I think Alderman's sort of place on campus is the last to go and there's sort of um, contemporary debate about whether or not to rename things after that named after Alderman. So that's one set of conversations that's happening. But having been involved in those kind of processes myself, never um, involving eugenics, but uh, about sort of Confederate memory and Civil War memory and, and Confederate monuments, there's also a part of me that, that, that understands how insufficient steps like that can be or how hollow they can be um, if the institution that is performing them does just that, makes a performance without putting any sort of investment into things like equity. So for something like eugenics, I'm, I'm open to be swayed, but I personally think it's good that those buildings were renamed um, just because uh, I, even as a historian, I think having things static like that is, is weird and, and sort of um, short-sighted. But we might also need to ask, what is the experience of disabled people at the University of Virginia? What is the experience of disabled people within the University of Virginia health systems? Um, what is the experience of, of black people and other people of color in the University of Virginia and the University of Virginia health systems? Um, University of Virginia, for example, is the largest landowner, both public and private, in the city of Charlottesville. So we would have to have a conversation and, and start a process. And these processes are already started by many people in different vantage points. But a conversation about to what extent is the University of Virginia uh, a supporter or an obstacle um, in sort of people who want to drive change in their communities. So it's a very, very complicated um, thing and nobody, nobody really understands that better, I think, than the people of Charlottesville. Elizabeth Catt is a public historian and the author of Pure America, Eugenics and the Making of Modern Virginia. Stick around, we've got more of our conversation with Elizabeth in the second half of this episode. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to figure out Virginia state politics? Well, tell them about this show. And then subscribe in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever fine podcasts are served up. Hey, and while you're there, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out. Bold Dominion is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, including Gritty Women, in 1970, the University of Virginia finally began to admit women into the College of Arts and Sciences. 
In this podcast, current UVA undergrad Giovanna de Oliveira explores the history of UVA's co-education and the experiences of women in that first co-educational class. That's Gritty Women. Listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. In the second part of this episode, Elizabeth Catt discusses the history of Virginia's eugenics movement in more detail, how it started, and how we deal with it today. She starts by talking about Carrie Buck, who was a Charlottesville resident and was the first person to be legally sterilized in Virginia back in 1927. Carrie Buck was a uh, was a woman who was born around, I think it was 1906. Um, she is born outside of Charlottesville, but as a young woman moves into the city, a similar pattern of migration that lots of young people um, at the time were, were sort of attempting to kind of take advantage of new employment, new economic opportunities in, in cities. Um, and so, um, sorry, that was her mother, Emma. And when Carrie is born, um, misfortune befalls on the family. We don't exactly know what happened. It could be that um, Carrie's father dies or he abandons his family. But nonetheless, um, Carrie and her mother sort of um, thrust, you know, uh, on, on the streets, you know, surviving by by good luck and, and some charity. They, they quickly become labeled as nuisance, you know, nuisance figures by the law, um, by social workers including people in the juvenile courts. Uh, Carrie is eventually placed into foster care where she is um, sent to live with a, a family on Grove Street in Charlottesville. Her foster family essentially make Carrie uh, a maid, force her to kind of do domestic labor for them until she is a teenager. Um, and when she's a teenager, when she's about 17 years old, um, she is raped by the nephew of her foster mother. And so looking to avoid the scandal of her pregnancy um, and potentially ramifications possibly for her nephew, legal ramifications, um, her foster family seeks her commitment to an institution called the Lynchburg Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded, which is where her mother, Emma, has also been sent uh, several years before that. At the time of Carrie's commitment, Virginia had just passed a law in 1924, um, the Eugenic Sterilization Act, which gave it the power of law to recommend the sterilization of anybody committed to a state institution that um, the state felt, and just to, to summarize, um, hereditarily deficient in mental capacity. And the physicians at the uh, Lynchburg Colony argued that that applied to Carrie and selected her to be the first person legally sterilized in the state of Virginia. Um, but in the background to all of this, there's sort of a powerful network of nationally renowned eugenicists working in concert with one another, and they feel that it would be beneficial to advance the case through an appeals process that included an appeal with the Supreme Court, just to make the law um, is, is, is sound and, and sort of bulletproof as possible. And they also think that Carrie will be a perfect sort of first person to, to execute this, because not only is her mother institutionalized, She's been institutionalized. Um, there are people willing to step forward, including Red Cross nurses, to testify that her, her daughter uh, is also mentally compromised. And so that uh, becomes the Supreme Court case Carrie's life. Um, Buck v. Bell um, judged in, in 1927. And when it is affirmed by the Supreme Court, it effectively legalizes eugenic sterilization nationwide. Any state that wanted to enact a similar law then was free to do that. Carrie was uh, sterilized, I believe, when she was about 21 years old is when the, the, the process sort of runs its course. 
Um, she is placed under supervision of her institution working in things like uh, lumber mills and as a domestic worker for several years. Um, she eventually marries twice um, and uh, returns to Charlottesville as an elderly woman. Um, Carrie Buck is buried in, I believe it's Oakwood Cemetery in Charlottesville and there's a plaque about her life near near the elementary school where her daughter attended. Um, other than that, she's sort of an invisible figure um, in local history and, and it would be great to change that. And, and I suspect that uh, we're coming up on sort of these, the anniversary of these laws very soon, you know, um, 1924, 2024. Um, so perhaps there will be wider acknowledgement of that past then. What is sort of the, the modern look at our eugenics history? So Buck v. Bell is still technically law of the land. It's never been overturned by the Supreme Court. What happens instead is that many states, including Virginia, start voluntarily withdrawing laws that uh, permitted eugenic sterilization in the 1970s. And so by 1979, um, most of the laws that allowed, and the statutes that allowed uh, eugenic sterilization are off the books in Virginia. In the late 1980s and 1990s, there are um, a number of legal challenges that um, come to the front in Virginia um, that try to weaken Buck v. Bell or overturn it would be the ultimate goal, but weaken Buck v. Bell. Some of those are waged by the ACLU, for example, um, getting to declare the um, sterilizations of, of anonymous patients, for example, unconstitutional um, due to their specific circumstances. And then in the 2013-2014, the sort of what happens is Virginia and then soon after North Carolina decide to make public declarations of regret for their role in disseminating and enforcing um, eugenics through law. They apologize for enacting a Eugenic Sterilization Act and also a Racial Integrity Act and they kind of make it explicit that this law was classist, racially motivated, um, buoyed by pseudoscience, and that it was wrong. And then several years, well, let's say, let's say one or two years after that, start to think seriously about compensation for survivors of eugenic sterilization, both North Carolina and Virginia, um, and eventually both do. Uh, in 2013, North Carolina enacts uh, compensation for surviving uh, eugenic sterilization victims. And in 2015, the state of Virginia does. Uh, Virginia offered payments of $25,000 to people who could prove that they had been um, sterilized in one of five Virginia state hospitals. Um, and approximately from last time I checked, it was about 28 people who were able to kind of claim compensation for that. Um, in North Carolina, the sum was $50,000. So it was higher than, than Virginia, um, but it was also kind of a, 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 had that process had flaws as well. Um, so I think that that's really exceptional in a lot of ways. Um, around 30 states enacted eugenic sterilization laws, and there were laws, and there were, you know, um, bodies that targeted specific groups like Native women or, or Puerto Rican women. Um, and so far, we only have two states, North Carolina and Virginia, that have ever offered any kind of um, compensation for that. So even though the process was flawed, I think it's fair to recognize that as, as truly exceptional. Um, and there's 
you know, similar potential in, in, in uh, California, but also Vermont as well. Um, at the same time, we also have to, I think, acknowledge that those um, regret and compensation were intentionally very, very late, um, timed to benefit the smallest number of people um, as possible. And so uh, that's sort of a, re a reality that, that, that um, goes shoulder to shoulder with this, that, that these, these extraordinary programs were also intentionally delayed to keep the pool um, artificially narrow yeah, so that that also kind of goes hand in hand with kind of where I want to uh, lead as we as we wrap up, which is the way the way we deal with that history today in terms of the land, right? You talk about how Western State Hospital is now the the Blackburn Inn, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, talk talk a little bit about going there, staying there, and what you kind of uh, learned and and realized, I suppose. Uh, so one of the reasons that I wrote this book is I used to be um, the neighbor of Western State Hospital. I had a house that overlooked the hospital. Um, and in 2006, the sort of derelict collection of buildings that was once Western State, um, Western State now exists on different modern premises, but the, the, the sort of assortment of buildings that had once been the original campus um, had been transferred to a private developer to create, uh, among other enterprises, sort of a, a upscale hotel and, and sort of a luxury property development. Um, and I kind of caught the, the middle stages of that where there was construction happening to transform the administrative buildings of the old hospital into, into a hotel. And I was very curious um, how they would deal with their history. Um, so they've been selling property for quite some time, but you can be a little bit more ambiguous with, with a you know, private property like that. Um, so how are they gonna pitch the, the sort of very complicated history of this institution to um, you know, tourists and sort of make them want to kind of think of this place as a you know, kind of cozy location where you could have a wedding. Um, and the answer is they, <laughs> they do it by just not talking about the um, you know the the sort of fifty year reign of eugenics at that institution. They talk about uh, a lot of the earlier history where some of the physicians there, and including one superintendent, um, you know, really tried to change uh, what we now call psychiatric medicine for the better by using architecture to be in alignment with more humane treatment um, options. And that's all true history. Um, it's it's a very interesting history too. It's like the um, mid late eighteen hundreds, right? <laughs> Yeah, so um, the hospital was created in 1824, and sort of the, the earlier history of that hospital inserts it in this period that historians sometimes call moral medicine. So the urge and impulse among practitioners to move uh, psychiatric medicine in a more humane direction by throwing away things like restraint, thinking about psychiatric institutions is, is similar to prisons, and more like thinking about them as a place where people could recover or rest. Um, and it was believed that environmental beauty, architectural beauty, attention to things like fresh air and sunlight would really um, be a benefic benefit to patients. And since a lot of those architectural details are still very visible on the site today, it makes sense definitely to tell that story. <laughs> they haven't found a way um, to kind of incorporate um, the not so happy, um, more fraught uh, parts of the site's history um, into the past, so I very generously suggest they, they talk about things like patient labor at the site and the psychiatric patients who were responsible for constructing um, some of the buildings that are still 
uh, used today on this site. But I think that, um, you know, the, the history, kind of looking at the history of eugenics that way, there's a lots of ways that I could have told the history, you know, I could have talked about really gruesome operations, I could have talked about really ugly philosophies, and certainly I don't erase those from the history at all. But I really wanted to sort of think about this history on terms that my community is comfortable talking about, to find a way to enter the conversation um, and sort of say, you're interested in things like old buildings. Well, I can talk to you about the history of eugenics through old buildings. So if you don't want to listen then, then I think that there might be something deeper going on. And so that's kind of where, um, where, where we're at right now. Um, but it was, it was very intentional to sort of set aside those details about things like operations and sort of experimental treatment to talk about what they might be able to see, what people might be able to see in the community that still is sort of um, imprinted with the history of eugenics. Elizabeth Catt is a public historian and the author of Pure America, Eugenics and the Making of Modern Virginia. Thanks to her for joining us this week. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Big thanks, as always, to our producer, Aryan Balu. Find the show online at bolddominion.org. And hey, we're always on the lookout for topics for future episodes. Send your ideas to our email address, bolddominion at virginia.edu. That's bolddominion at virginia.edu. You can also direct messages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, I hope you get vaccinated soon, y'all, if you haven't already. I am really pleased to not wear my mask all the time outside. (laughs) Anyway, I'll talk with you again in two weeks.